Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. In this episode, Dr. Adriana Nieto talks to Reverend Dr. Cristina Lizardi Hashbi about co-editing the volume, Explore, Vocational Discovery in Ministry. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Welcome to the HTI Open Plaza podcast. My name is Adriana Nieto. I'm a professor and chair of the Department of Chicano Chicana Studies at Metropolitan State University. I'm here today in conversation with Dr. Christina Lazardi Hajbi, who is an assistant professor of leadership and formation and director of the Office of Professional Formation at Iowa School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. She is the co-editor of the book Explore Vocational Ministry vocational discovery in ministry published by Roman and Littlefield this fall. And we will be discussing that book and some other work that she's working on. It's great to be here. Uh, thank you, Adriana. Um, yeah, happy to be here with you and excited to talk about the book. And congratulations on being promoted to full professor. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's exciting. They just had a reception last night. In addition to our our uh, department celebration. So it's been a couple of days of partying. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I wanted to share a little bit first about how you and I know each other, mm -hmm. uh, just so we can sort of establish that. I So almost 20 years ago now, probably close to 20 years ago, I was a Master of Divinity student at Iliff School of Theology, where I now teach. Mm -hmm. And Adriana was a PhD student in the joint ILIF and University of Denver uh, program in the study of religion. And so we got to know each other in that way when we were both students. And mm -hmm. so we've been in Denver, around Denver, uh, in Colorado for the last couple of decades, but never really had a chance to connect much over that time. So I'm really grateful that you're here today to engage in a conversation with me about this me too it's very it's seems like a long time ago but then when we started talking it felt like it was more recent so I'm I'm glad that we're able to reconnect now and talk about your book this awesome book yeah definitely so this book it's it's our vocational discovery in ministry co-edited work that I put together with my colleague, Matthew Floating, Matt Floating, who Duke Divinity School, mm -hmm. um, where he was the director of field education. And so this book takes a look at really 11 different areas of ministry that students might want to consider as part of their vocational work upon graduation from seminary. So um, those 11 areas span from, of course, pastoring a church to chaplaincy to academia, um, what that looks like, uh, nonprofit ministry, denominational ministry, spiritual entrepreneurship, and even interfaith, ecumenical, and bivocational or multivocational 
ministry. And the way the book is framed is that there's a uh, framing chapter or an organizational chapter that describes what that work is uh, from someone who has been practicing in that particular call. And then after that are three, what we call case study memoirs for um, from individuals who are in that particular area of ministry and they share their own story, their own vocational trajectory or journey into that call and how that call has been for them. So it's really a book offering options for individuals to think through what is my vocation in relationship to my identities, my experiences, and what I feel like are my strengths or my gifts and my passions. And it's a very diverse group of contributors. We have about 45 contributors to the book. And we have several Latino contributors, uh, mm -hmm. Puerto Rican, Cuban, Salvadoran, who are in these various areas of ministry. Uh, I share my own narrative as well at the beginning of the book as part of my vocational call. So uh, it's, it's something that Matt and I put together at uh, Matt's prompting as part of a larger series of uh, books. And this is the fourth book in the series on uh, field education and, and is specifically written for students who are in their field education year or semester or quarter in their program. So that's a little bit about the book. Well, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned your narrative because I wanted to actually start with that. Um, and before I do that, I just wanted to mention to folks that I am um, working from home today and my son is a musician and he's practicing his trombone. He's getting ready to um, do some auditions for college, for music schools. So he's, he's practicing and he has to work at three. So we're here together. Just wanted to mention that. He's yeah. quite talented, I think, of course, but so just, just a quick, just a quick note to the listeners. Yes. Um, I, I enjoy listening to the music as I, as we're talking. <laughs> it's good. It's a good, it's a good background. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about your narrative and then that will kind of bring us back to, you know, when you and I were first students together. 20 years ago that's kind of hard to believe it was so long ago and we were um we were students at a at a time in the history of the Isla School of Theology where there had been there were a lot of conversations happening around what um diversity looks like I don't know that we were even using those words at the time but you know what we would probably say today as asking questions about anti-racism and what are the commitments of the institution? What are the commitments of the, of, um, the larger institution of the Methodist church, but also lots of other questions about that for lots of, you know, reasons that, that we don't have to go into, but, you know, there was, I started my PhD program, I think the year after, um, president David Maldonado had left the institution and, we were we all inherited that some of some of our we had a students of color graduate student group that I think we co-founded together. Yes, we did. We did. Yeah. Yep. And so we were all navigating a lot 
of stuff in addition just to the regular um, the regular um, up, you know obstacles that that students have in graduate school we were also navigating these other sorts of waters and how did we negotiate you know how we negotiated for our own selves some of some folks left the institution and decided it was better to to leave the toxicity than to try to stay and change it and I think you and I I mean I can speak for myself but after reading your your narrative the the language that we have to describe things like I think applies to these institutions so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your phrase that you coined CCMM <laughs> that you're a, a connector creator misfit of multiplicities and I think it would be great if you could talk a little bit about that concept because it, it seems to have also informed the way that you all you know constructed the book yes yes definitely and and thank you for sort of detailing some of that history of our time at ILIF because I think, and, and this is what I believe about vocation and purpose in general, is that it really is the assemblage of one's life experiences, identities, and relationships. And as a result of that, that includes all experiences, positive, negative, struggles, otherwise, right? And this, this sense of ni de aquí, ni de allá is really a a way to think about the multiplicity of our experiences and being sort of not here, not there in betweenness that many of us who are Latina, Latino, um, you know, Black, Indigenous, Asian folks in the academy really um, navigate. Um, and we navigate those spaces with our identity, our, our backgrounds and in thinking about, well, how do I fit in the, not only the institution, but how do I fit in the academy as, as a piece of that? So that connector mm -hmm. creator misfit of multiplicities, mm -hmm. <laughs> the CCMM that I came up with, really <laughs> is the assemblage of my own experiences as a Puerto Riqueña, who was born and raised in Southern Colorado, Northern New Mexico, where there are not very many Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. um, and so even my own identity has been shaped by the Chicano context uh, much more than the Puerto Rican context, um, which for me was my family who lived in New York, right? Like mm -hmm. the New Yorkian family, that, that part of my identity and we lived in Colorado and that's where my parents decided to live. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, it really is this sort of, I, I have out of that cultivated a sense of purpose for who I am out mm -hmm. of who I am and my family and my background and how I grew up as a kind of way to navigate across difference. And so I, I have a purpose of being someone who can connect across difference because I live in multiple spaces. Um, and I exist as a biracial Puerto Rican Italian woman. So it, my own body is that sort of liminal space that I can navigate multiple worlds. Mm -hmm. And so doing that in the course of my various ministries, whether it was as a hospital chaplain or 
working in multicultural student affairs at an undergraduate institution where I worked with all students of color, international students, Muslim and Jewish students, uh, first generation students, which I am also, and lots of other identities, LGBTQ students. Um, working across those differences has really only confirmed and strengthened my own sense of purpose to be a mm. CCMM. That's awesome. That's, I loved it. When I saw it, I was like, this is good. And when I first saw Misfit, I was thinking, I don't know, is that too negative? But, but I don't think it is. I think that you really sort of reclaim and help, help, you know, own some of the, you know, transforming something that might be considered negative into something positive. And the, you know, the concept of not from, neither from here nor there, doesn't necessarily have to be negative either, right? That liminal space is also the space of deep and intense creativity that sometimes emerges out of pain, but also it can can really emerge from um, some really beautiful places. And I love the narrative about and your description of Southern Colorado, because it's so typical for Chicanos in Denver, for Mexican-Americans in Denver to trace their lineage to places like Southern College, like where you grew up, mm-hmm. um, right by the, you know, I've taken students on field trips to the Ludlow Massacre um, yeah. marker, that monument there. And I used to assume that you were there because your parents had long lineage as Im- Italian immigrants, because a lot of Italian immigrants were part of the mining community in Ludlow yes. at the time of the massacre, but your family went there later. And I just think that's really interesting um, how you make those connections and probably some assumptions on the part of Chicanos and Mexican Americans in Colorado about you and about your background. Um, I wonder if you have any stories that you might want to share about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I grew up five miles from the Ludlow massacre site, Mm -hmm. uh, which is 20 miles Northwest of Trinidad, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Um, and I uh, just knowing the history of uh, the Ludlow massacre, and for those who who aren't familiar, it's it's um, a multi-day. It was a multi-day standoff in the early 1900s between um, workers who were working in the coal mines, and 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 that region was a big coal mining area. In some ways, it still is. There's still, I think, one or two functioning mines. Uh, coal mines in Southern Colorado, and there were immigrants from all over the world, all over the world, Asia, mm-hmm. Europe, it, Italy, of course, which is why there are a lot of Italians in that region as well. Mm-hmm. And it resulted in the deaths of several women and children that standoff mm-hmm. that lasted several days between the company and the and the National Guard actually had to be brought in. Teddy Roosevelt brought in the National Guard, and mm-hmm. it became one of the early um, a catalyst for the union, um, uh, the creation of unions in the United States. And mm-hmm. so it, it is really an important historical mark. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, like I didn't come from that place. My parents settled in Colorado because they had friends there who are also from New York. And so my mm-hmm. parents having grown up in the Bronx and in upstate New York, my grandma or my grandparents settled my Italian ones settled in Nourishell, but, but English was not the first language that 
like either of my parents spoke in the home. It was Spanish mm. and Italian. And so mm. growing up around those languages, yet at the same time, not being allowed or not being given the opportunity to learn those languages because my parents believed that it was a detriment to their children to learn multiple languages. That's sort of the Americanization, the, the impact of colonization, right? Mm -hmm. um, that still leaves its mark. Um, it, it's, it's important, um, especially for those of us who are Latina, Latino, who, who have lost that sort of sense of who we are Mm -hmm. um, in the language. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, it, and that is another way that I, I sort of see myself as a, in a liminal space. The, the misfit part that you reference, I actually attribute to my own parents who I believe both of them were considered misfits in their families. Mm. They moved away from their families. They were in some ways, the, the misfits of their own system, family system units. And so they together created their new family system. And I carry that legacy of being an outsider or a misfit or someone who is subversive in a good way in trying to change systems and processes and sort of forging new ways of being and doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I'm thinking about misfit all new, all, in all new way now. Nice. I think it's cool too, because if you look at the root, I mean, I don't know the, the Latin root of the, word, of the word misfit, but you know, something that isn't, doesn't quite fit in something. And if that something is an educational system, for example, or a classroom space or a, you know, recruitment session or, um, then how awesome, right. For you to be in this position now to be helping and guiding students through their own vocational process and discernment process about, you know, perhaps being in positions to, to change those systems instead of trying to force the misfits to fit and adapt. Um, maybe there are some folks who can take away from your, your, you know, framing of the, of the book to challenge the way the systems force people to fit in certain ways yeah so I mean it could it could lead to some structural change you know in these institutions I wonder if you could talk about maybe a couple of the other authors and how you have seen um that come through in their narratives if you want to reference a couple of the other Latino Latina authors yeah or any of the authors but I mean it's HGI so <laughs> <laughs> yes absolutely um yeah, I, I love I love so many of the narratives in the book that really exemplify uh, the notion of being a misfit, right? Not not fitting into the systems and the the different ways of doing and being. And and in the book, we had to narrow it down to only eleven different avenues or areas of ministry, right? But ministry is construed quite broadly. Uh, in that regard. And so, um, mm -hmm. and there are many more ministry areas, right, that one could go into, and we had to narrow that. But in in thinking about that, and especially I had students at ILIF in mind, when crafting and, and selecting authors for this book, because 
so many of at least my own students and the conversations that I have with them, they don't fit in sort of traditional categories, especially our United Methodist students who are struggling now with the, mm-hmm. the schism that's happening in the Methodist church and feeling like there may not be a place for them. Mm-hmm. We also have many sort of ex-evangelical students who come to ILIF searching for, like, I feel like I have this sense of purpose and call and vocation, but I don't know where to put it because there's not a tradition that sort of will accept me for who I am or my gifts and those sorts of things. So there, this book was written with them in mind, um, mm-hmm. or was put together with them in mind. And so some of the narratives, um, for example, uh, Rina Ramos, who is uh, from El Salvador, she um, became a lawyer in, in the United States. Like that was her sort of first career in work, working with immigrants um, mm-hmm. as an immigration lawyer and such a brilliant human being. And, and she's a, a UCC minister just like me. And so I got to know her through the United Church of Christ. And she works for the national setting, but her own work is this bivocational starting a new ministry for Mm -hmm. Latinos um, who identify as LGBTQ and, and starting a new church ministry while at the same time working for the national setting, doing advocacy work and such a, a wonderful story of sort of her own um, coming out and coming into who she is and, and how that became a part of her work and her vocation and purpose in helping others do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, I can think of um, in the academia section, my colleague Miguel de la Torre talks about his own beginnings as a minister, um, as a Southern Baptist minister, um, you know, and how he came into academia as a result of that, that Mm -hmm. experience, which was quite jarring for him. He was in a white, very rural Appalachian part of the country doing this work and was realizing this is, (laughs) I don't know, I don't think this is for me. I think (laughs) my gifts and skills could be used elsewhere. So again, it's really all of like all of our experiences and who we are form and shape our purposes, our vocations, and how we express those specifically as calls in the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, just some really wonderful narratives. Um, there, there are so many. There's a narrative from a medical doctor who goes to seminary and um, figures out how to do this work bivocationally, right? Working and being, ministering and living with people who have different abilities um, than him and also continuing his practice as a doctor. Just so many different kinds of stories that I I hope expand the imaginations of students rather than say, create limits or say you have to do this or, you know, this box is what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's really beautiful. So um, there's a, we have another question here that I think is really interesting. And as someone who's not in a seminary context, I'm in an undergraduate um, primarily context. I think I've worked with one or two grad students over the years, but my institution doesn't have grad students. So I don't get to, I don't work with folks at the same sort of point in wherever non-linear mm-hmm. timeline that folks are on. 
um, that you might be working with folks who are who are trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about your definition or your understanding of vocational discernment. Um, and then what do you see as some of the key themes related to that work in the book? Yes, yes. And thank you for naming that because we, uh, I think vocation is a language which we discern and then we're done. Discernment is this ongoing, iterative, continual phenomenon that we're always doing <laughs> in relationship to our surroundings, our contexts that we're currently in, all of that work, right? And so for undergraduate students, it's much the same. And I, I imagine, and, and having worked with undergrads as well, vocation and discernment is a, is a big topic still, you know, as students begin to get to their senior year, what are they going to do? You know, looking at jobs, looking at different options um, for what they might want to pursue is, is, you know, critically important in terms of their own, their own point of formation in sort of who they are professionally, personally, and vocationally, right? Um, even spiritually, religiously, all of those things combined emotionally. Um, and so for me, I think as I, I shared already, it really is um, discerning one's identities, experiences, and relationships and where that leads them specifically. So it is sort of a self-reflective exercise, a self-reflective process. And I always encourage students, no matter, you know, undergraduate, graduate, uh, I have several doctoral students who are continuing discernment work. What do I do after this? Like academia is not necessarily an option because jobs are scarce. And so what else might, might I be called to do? It, it really is something that is individual right? And so having trusted people to engage in that conversation with is critical for anyone, no matter at what point they're at in that, in that process. And, and having, I think, models of people who have, I would say, non-traditional, um, but alternative has to the, where they've gotten now and for models and people to share those stories is critically important because that does expand imagination. So, so for me, I would say in, in the process, it, it is self-reflective as one component. It requires community. It requires others to journey along with us to help us reflect and expand our imaginations. And it is something that I consider to be sacred. It is a sacred task that no matter what one's beliefs or meaning-making frameworks are, it is something that should be considered with care, that is holy, and that is done, I think, in mystery often because we don't know the end point of where someone's going to end up in a call or a, uh, and so there's some reliance on mystery there in the sacredness of that. 
That was beautiful. You know, one of the one of the foundations of HCI is is en conjunto, right? Theology en conjunto, and I think the importance of community can't be um, emphasized enough. And I think that's often one of the biggest challenges, especially for students who are doing other things besides being students, um, like having families that or or loved ones they're taking care of or holding jobs that are outside of that and that maybe take some just just actual time like time out of the day where you might not have time to do discernment but also where you're kind of isolated and far away from community and so I'm wondering if you have some like practical sort of you know daily nuts and bolts ideas like is journaling a good way to do it is praying a good way to do it is what are some sort of like daily practices that you would recommend um students start engaging into to you know to have that reflection space yes i would say yes to all of the things you've named <laughs> definitely um mm -hmm. journaling prayer and community is so important, right? Like that is that is the the crux of what we do. I I think the most common word in all of our chapter titles in the book is community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you, so too. Yeah, you'll see several chapters that say called by community, doing this in community, like like you know, comunidad and mm -hmm. and prayer is is of course important, meditation, journaling but conversations with others, um, being in community with others. And of course, in my own context, there are structures to do that, right? Students take courses, uh, they take a course called Identity, Power and Vocation in Community. Nice. And it's a year long course where they're discerning this together based on their own identities and experiences, learning about power and difference. And they have to begin to name who are my communities in that mm -hmm. class because so many people are isolated and we live in this individualistic culture yeah. that emphasizes performance production as the ultimate good and yeah we True. challenge that notion um in that class and i challenge it with all my students to say like you may have a vocation that you came into seminary with or you're you feel like you're called to be this and to go do this and enact this onto the world, you can't do that if you're not in community and it, it doesn't work as successfully if you're not in relationship with others. So I would say conversations with others is really critical. And that may be with a, you know, for our students, it could be with a pastor, it could be with a mentor, it could be with a spiritual director, it could be, um, you know, if they're in context where they feel isolated, finding someone to just have those conversations with. Journaling is also really important, though, because it helps us solidify our ideas. Um, for those of us who are more like verbal and want to write things down before we actually talk about things. And, and for others who are verbal processors out loud, they can do that with other people, but I think as many modalities as possible in reflecting upon vocation it are, are essential and, and are needed throughout different points of our lives, right? Because this is a lifelong endeavor. So I hope that answered your question a little bit. 
you talked about this just a little bit in the last question, but, but we have another question about what advice you might have for those in seminary or in undergraduate studies regarding discerning their futures. And we did talk about that a little bit, um, but yeah. if, do you want to add anything to that or, or expand on that? Um, one thing that I tell students and I must continually remind them is that it's a journey. And so much of our society puts pressure on individuals to achieve and to, you know, be in sort of positions and roles that may not necessarily align with who they are um, and what they want to do in the world. And, and there is that real struggle between like, how do I feed my family and do the work I'm called to do? And especially for us um, and, and for me growing up poor and, you know, like it just mattered that I had a job, right. That I could support myself and had money. Those are very real tensions. And so I, I tell students, you know, you don't have to have everything figured out. And if your work right now is to just work and make some money, that's what you're doing. But, but how are you cultivating your imagination and doing things that give you joy in the midst of that? And even still, um, because there is that spark, I believe, within each of us that we need to continue to nurture. And, and whether that's through music, through, um, you know, helping others, anything, you know, that spark that can really, um, you know, give us a sense of purpose and meaning, even in the midst of doing things that are hard, caring for elderly family members, caring for children, that's what's really important, uh, I think, in the midst of it. And so I just tell students, it's a journey. It's a, it's a process, you know, be in the moment and enjoy the process, but continue to do the self-reflective work. So you said a couple of things, and I want to um, sort of ask you about your own, um, you mentioned cult, you, you would encourage students to cultivate imagination and um, what gives you joy? And so I would ask, I would like to know how you do that. What do you do to cultivate your imagination and what gives you joy? So there are lots of different ways that I cultivate joy and expand imagination. Uh, for me, that includes things like meditation, prayer, journaling. I often spend one or two times a year away from everything, away from electronic devices, and just spend time in the mountains of Southern Colorado where I grew up. And for me, that really refreshes me and rejuvenates my own soul and spirit. The other thing that I find as something that just gives me pure joy and helps me get away from my faculty self, my minister self, all of those selves that are professionally created as part of my vocation and really just live into my personal self is spending time with family. Uh, mostly spending time with my two little nephews who basically are the joys of my life. And so spending a lot of time with them and with their parents uh, and with my spouse has given me the most joy, I think, at least recently in the last couple of years and reminded me that 
um, we are multiplicitous selves. We are family members. We are or can be ministers. We are academics. We are all of these things. And giving space and time to all of these things is part of our ultimate purpose and vocation in the world. I want to. I want you to talk about um, what you're working on. What you're working on now. Yes. So. <laughs> I am currently on a research leave for this term, and I am in the middle of working on a book that is a decolonial reimagination uh, of theory and praxis of religious leadership. And so it's really a, a book about leadership. I teach leadership at, at ILIF, and I um, do scholarship on leadership. More generally, uh, part of my doctoral program, I, I have a PhD in education, not religion. And so part of that work was in educational leadership. And so um, thinking about leadership a lot and, and doing that work, I and also being in conversation with post-colonial and decolonial theologies and theories, um, I'm putting together a work that begins to deconstruct or pull the threads of the fabric of religious leadership and pull on the threads of colonial, uh, colonial and imperial frameworks that undergird religious leadership so that we can practice and frame leadership in decolonial ways. So that's really what I'm working on now and in the midst of writing and, and hoping that that will be published in the future once I complete that project. I'm also really excited because I just received a book yesterday that a chapter uh, that I wrote was published in and uh, Miguel de la Torre wrote this, uh, edited this book called Shifting Climate Shifting People about the impact of colonization and imperialism and on the environment and how people move around the world. And so my own chapter is about my own ancestors and their movement from Puerto Rico to New York. Um, and what that looked like and how the effects of migration continue between Puerto Rico and the U.S., uh, the mainland, uh, especially in light of uh, environmental impacts like Hurricane Maria, as well as the continuing uh, understanding and practice that Puerto Rico remains a territory of the United States. And so resources and production and monocrops that are cultivated on Puerto Rico do very little to sustain life um, and give people a sense of agency in Puerto Rico. So that's um, something that I'm also really proud of. So all of my scholarship really includes me <laughs> and parts of who I am, right? We can't be objective in that sense um, as scholars and practitioners, we do it out of who we are. And so I'm, I'm continuing to write and publish works that um, I feel have a sense of integrity in that way. 
I'm very look, much looking forward to reading both the, the chapter and Miguel's whole book and then your new product. Do you think you could define very, you know, briefly, how would you define decolonial or decolonization? <laughs> yeah, that easy oh, question. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so for me, um, decoloniality negates the insidiousness of colonialism in all the ways that it is manifest and present for us today. And, and that happens contextually, right? But here in the US, we have, and we exist within a colonial empire where not only do we have a history of um, enslavement and you know genocide and taking of native lands, but it's continued into our inextricable connections with militarism, uh, imperialism, and and the process of modernity um, in how we construct knowledge, in how we have our very being, and in really ultimately how we are and how we show up in the world. And so I'm really trying to unpack those pieces in this work that I'm, I'm doing now. Um, and I really consider myself part of the decolonial strain of scholarship because as a Latina in North America, we have specific histories of colonization and those, and those histories are continuing today, especially with the case of Puerto Rico, right? Um, but so much of, of Central America, South America, those, those realities continue to today. So decoloniality for me is finding, and, and this is what Walter Minolo and Catherine Walsh say, uh, possibilities for an otherwise. How might we do and be other than what we are at this point that is in direct subversion of how we exist as colonial beings and colonial subjects. So how do we use our own histories, our own identities as Latinos, as Latinas to subvert the colonial dominance that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis? And how do we not replicate those cycles in our own praxis? And that's really for me an embodied, an embodied way of of understanding decoloniality, especially as a religious leader in a white mainline Protestant denomination, which I'm in. How do I subvert um, those processes while still existing within them? And maybe ultimately by my subversion, I might dismantle some pieces that really need dismantling. I love that image of pulling, I think you said pulling on the threads of colonial definitions of religious leadership. I think that's a great image because it's so big. Like colonialism is this huge concept. It's not like, like my own mother the other day asked me, what does decolonial mean? Because my daughter had a t-shirt that says decolonize something. And, and my mom was like, what does that mean? And my daughter goes, mom, can you answer that? <laughs> You're the professor. And it's, it's, it's a difficult concept. And so I really love the image of all the threads because there's, 
there are inter everything there's so many interwoven parts and one thread is one color and another thread is another color and sometimes you tie a knot and sometimes you just try to weave it in there and and yep, it's harder exactly. to, it's harder to pull at if there's a knot there and <laughs> right so I really I really like that image of pulling the threads oh of, good yeah well, I, I like that <laughs> I appreciate you saying that because that's that really is the founding metaphor of my book. So my tentative title is Unraveling Religious Leadership, Decolonial Considerations on Theory and Practice. Oh, I love that. That's a great title. I love okay. it. I also, you know, a, a, one of the first times I read um, Gloria Anseldua's Borderlands book, which has deeply influenced me, and I, I believe you and I have talked about this before, how it's mm. influenced both of us, but she talks about the interstitial spaces and yes. I didn't know what that was. I had to look that up when I first read it. Um, and I think it's a great, it's just, you. it's going to be, I'm very excited to, to, to read how you work with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because the, I, the spaces in between the interstitial spaces are often the spaces of the, of the betwixt in between, like you described in your, narrative and so I'm I'm it's definitely I'm excited I'm excited to read it oh great yeah the, yeah. the Gloria Enzaldua I mean her work has just been central to my own understanding of myself uh much less my my scholarship and um yeah it really is working in in those interstitial spaces um, more recently, Willie James Jennings, who in his book, After Whiteness, um, An Education and Belonging, which I, I love, I love him and I love the book. He talks about working with the fragments. Um, and, and he describes Black women quilting culture and, and taking fragments and making something beautiful and reworking the purpose of them. And I think that's similar to what Ansel Dua is talking about. Um, how do we engage in those liminal, you know, how do we bridge? How do we work within those inter interstitial spaces to, to weave together something that um, is subversive and uses the fragments of our own traditions um, within a colonial context that we're never really going to escape at this point. So yeah, that's... Uh, I'll, I'll look forward to hopefully writing something that you'll be excited to read. Definitely. And, you know, we're developing, I think I told you we're developing a, a new minor in um, social justice and decolonial studies at MSU Denver with my department, gender, women's studies, sexualities, and Africana studies and Native American studies. So we're, you know, we haven't launched it yet, but I really think that we're at a moment where our students are craving this. They, 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 they know that something's wrong. They know that something's off. I think maybe, maybe COVID gave us a little bit of time to reflect on some of what we think is wrong and how we need to change and what we can get rid of. And so I'm, you know, I'm going <laughs> to rely on your scholarship um, to help us build that, build that minor to really get students prepared for, for potentially going on to grad school and working with scholars like yourself. So I oh, really, I feel like this is a great opportunity for us to reconnect to all these years later um, 
and really talk about how we can how we can serve students in all of these different paths that they're on. Um, yeah, so, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And and students really, I love that you're creating a new major or a new minor because students really do need to understand and and find tools and ways to to live and to thrive through the next several decades, you know, even when you and I are gone, how yes. do they live in these, in many ways, post, post-apocalyptic realities mm-hmm. that Definitely. we've created? Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. It has been a pleasure talking to you dialoguing about your work and about your own discernment process and your own vocational journey. Um, Yeah, it's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the conversation we've had today, the chance to reconnect after so many years. And Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing at Metro State with undergraduates and, and the the minor, which is really exciting. So thank you, Dr. Nieto. Mm -hmm. My pleasure. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.